Welcome to The Last Supper, a weekly podcast featuring emergent and established artists, gallerists, curators and collectors in Asia. Hello, I'm your podcast host Oscar Venhuis. In this episode, I sat down with Shi Wang of Yongshui in Hong Kong. We talked about how the COVID pandemic was the reason for beginning his journey in the arts, the state of art critiquing in Hong Kong and why he needs to do a stand-up comedy to join his team. The reason for this podcast is to raise the awareness of art in Asia. If you wish to learn more about art in Asia, I highly recommend you to join one of the many in-person or virtual art classes, lectures, workshops, gallery visits and art city trips that are hosted and organized by Christie's Education in Hong Kong. To claim your 15% discount, follow the details in this podcast description. Welcome, Shivan. How are you today? Good to see you, Oscar. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. I'm looking around your office, which is central here in Hong Kong, and I see beside a wide range of alcoholic beverages, several pieces of art on the wall. Let's begin describing what we are looking at. Yeah, absolutely. So here on my right, we have two pieces by Peter Yule. So Peter Yule is a legendary artist from, well, he was born and raised in London, Canada, London, Ontario, if I'm not mistaken. He's definitely going to get mad at me if I mess this up. No, he's not. He's pretty cool. But he's from London, Ontario. He was born and raised there, but he's been living in Asia and in Hong Kong specifically for like the last 10 plus years. And his work is really interesting because, well, he's been a practicing artist for over 20 years now, right? So he's been producing work for two decades, probably over two decades, to be honest. And for the first 10 years of his career as an artist, he was trying a lot of different things. You know, he was producing different kinds of work and nothing was really clicking for him. And when I say clicking for him, I don't just mean in terms of his wanting to exhibit work and try to sell it. I mean, it wasn't working in that sense either necessarily, but it just wasn't feeling right for him in his head. So what he started to do towards the end of that first decade, if you will, is start to simplify his process. And what he started doing is just drawing circles. That's it. All he did was draw circles and... He got some kind of meditation from it or therapy, if you will, and he would start to reach this state of trance. And I think that's what has allowed him to, from there, 10 years later from that, or, you know, however long it is, evolve to this state here, which is where he's producing these beautiful pieces that are tied into sacred geometry, right? And this series of work, actually, we did this show with him in November in Central And this series of work compared to his last series is an evolution from his previous body of work. It's a step towards simplicity and complexity at the same time. Simplicity in the sense where in his previous body of work, he would also utilize different pigments like gold pigment, copper pigment. So simplicity in the sense where it's only ink on paper, but then complexity because there's a lot more overlapping with the lines, right? For everyone who's listening, I wish you could see it. Make sure you check out Peter Yule's work because it's very, very interesting. I would say it's also akin to taking your hand and holding it to a speaker because in many ways, this reflects vibrations and frequencies, but in a 2D and static format, right? So Peter has done a very, very good job of capturing what vibrations and frequencies and waves feel like, or sorry, what they what they were to look like. You know, we can feel them, we can hear them, but this is his depiction of what they look like. 
And for him, this is what he feels and experiences in the universe. So he is really just a conduit of his experiences and what he believes, you know, is going on in the universe. He's just a conduit from our collective experiences onto paper. And I think what's interesting about his work is because it's quite minimal in its own sense. And, you know, because it's sacred geometry, so there's elements of abstraction in it. I think everyone interprets interprets it differently. And oftentimes, you know, some of his collectors have said that when people walk past it in their homes, you know, their guests and things like that, they often find them just staring at one of his paintings for a few minutes. And oftentimes, whenever they're questioned about what they were staring into the painting or the artwork, they say that everyone says different things, which I think is very, very interesting. Where and how did you meet Peter? Was this in Hong Kong? So I met Peter, actually, it's a funny story. So Peter and I met in, I forget the first time we met, in person. Oh no, actually I do remember. The first time we met in person was outside Honky Tonk Bar in Central because uh, I was meeting Simon Birch, who's another artist, to talk to him about, you know, the gallery that we were launching at the time. But I actually spoke to Peter on the phone a few months before that because at the time we were, my business partner and I, Alexander glavatz who's a co-founder in Young Soy Gallery with me, we were setting up a online gallery at the time and I was really hoping that Peter would work with us. You know, I had saw Peter's work before online and I had always admired what he's doing. And so I really wanted to get in touch with him. When I got in touch with him, he was like, all right, buddy, let me tell you something. You know, and he was basically like, he helped us understand the art world a little bit better. We were very new, so we didn't really understand anything about it. And he was telling us how he's already being represented by a gallery at the time. And you know, that basically he would like for us to have more experience before we might collaborate because we were so new to it. And then I saw Peter after that quite often, you know, and frequently at different shows, his show, he would come to our shows. He was very supportive. And I would always ask him, I was like, let me sell your work. Let me sell your work. <laughs> we really wanted to do a show with him. And then finally we had a phone call this year in August. And I was like, Hey, we'd love to do a show with you. And then he was like, you know what? I'm actually planning on doing a show in November. So why don't we do it together? And so for me, it was a very special show because at first Peter wasn't quite ready to work with us because how new we were. And then roughly two years later, he gave us the opportunity because he felt we were ready. So it's quite validating, you know, especially from an artist who's this talented, you know, for any artist and you're an artist, Oscar, so you know this yourself, right? For any artist to trust a gallery or a gallerist or anyone with their artwork for the gallerist is a very special feeling and it's a lot of responsibility as well but it makes you as the gallerist really want to do whatever you can to justify the trust that the artist put in you to you know be the champion of their work and what about the other two works that i see on the wall yes okay two other pieces so let's go clockwise i suppose so this here is stern rockwell so stern rockwell was Born and raised, or well, raised in Brooklyn. I'm, yeah, born and raised in Brooklyn, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> Jesus Christ, I should do my homework. And he started off as a writer, right? So writer is basically a term for graffiti artists. So he would tag trains and, you know, trucks and walls in Brooklyn when he was growing up. And through that, he developed his own style, which we can see here. And he also did a lot of interesting projects. Like I'm, I remember he was, you know, hired, uh, like on a freelance basis by Dior and all these big brands in the, in, in New York to basically help them with their design work. And so he had a lot of experience with that, but then he also came to Hong Kong over 10 years ago now 
And he started producing work, not only a lot of murals and things like that all across the city, but he also started creating exhibition pieces. And one of my favorite things about his work is that his figures are, I mean, he's got a lot of detail in all of the figures, but they're very surreal in a way. You know, they have a lot of character, especially the way he does fingers and the way the fingers curl. So it's one thing that really appealed to me. And Cern Rockwell is just a really cool guy. You know, like I met him for the first time in 2020 and we just started chatting and, you know, chatting about the art world and things like that. And then we did our first show together this year, 2000, or sorry, last year, 2022, um, on Hollywood Road in Central alongside Russ Rubin, Rhea Chandramani, and of course Stern. And it was a really great show because it was kind of this idea of what delirium means, right? Which is a dual state, right? It's either means you're either full of ecstasy and happiness or complete confusion and chaos. And I think each of these artists individually represent that idea. So that's Stern Rockwell. He has murals across Hong Kong. He's got a really cool one in Wong Chuk Kang that he did for the uh, Wee's Foundation, uh, which is prevention for youth suicide. And that mural is very, very moving. So if you ever get the chance to go check it out, I highly recommend it. Then behind you here, we have Taka, who is a street artist based in Hong Kong, originally from Japan. He has been also been doing a lot of murals across Hong Kong. He's worked with a lot of brands like Black Label, you know, Johnny Walker Black Label, um, some other uh, alcohol brands. And this piece here was done by Airbrush. So I think for him, he's very comfortable with aerosols, right? He's very comfortable working with spray uh, on the streets. And then we wanted to do affordable art fair with him because we think his work is just beautiful and we were doing these black walls for affordable art fair and they just pop you know i mean you can see it right here on this black wall it looks like there was 100 cm by 100 cm you know snowfall and then he went on there and tagged that that's for some reason why how i see it right it looks like it's been it's it's like a a portrait that's been tagged on top of a snowfall on this dark black surface and for me that was you know, really, really special and captivating. So he was ready to do it with us, which was awesome. And he's doing some other projects this year. He was really fun to work with, but he's got a very unique style, as you can see. And with Airbrush to capture this much detail, I think is a feat on its own. We've met each other several times here in Hong Kong, but we never really actually talked about this. So I am very curious how you ended up in art, because from what I understand, that wasn't a entirely planned journey. Sure, that's a really good <laughs> that's a really good question. So I used to work in video production before I once I graduated from university in 2018. I worked for a number of different production houses in Hong Kong, and. I resigned from my job in December 2019 with the hopes of traveling for 2020. You know, I was going to do my whole eat, pray, love, go backpacking Europe, do all that stuff. But then, of course, COVID hit and smashed that dream to a million pieces. And no video production companies were hiring at the time because a lot of companies were not hiring you know, production houses because they wanted to cut costs and be very, very conservative with how they were spending their money, which makes sense, right? So production houses were feeling it, something that's a non-essential. I would argue that it is an essential, but you know, a lot of companies are arguing that it's a non-essential. So video production wasn't hiring. 
and I was actually at a philosophy school in India. Uh, shout out to Swamiji. I was at a philosophy school there, and while I was there, I got news that Art Basel in Hong Kong was cancelled. And I'm not. I mean, Art Basel is great, but you know, I think Art Basel is also the nucleus for the art world in Hong Kong for Art Month. And all these other interesting art events take place. And when that got cancelled, I knew everything else was going to get cancelled alongside it. So uh, Xander, who's again now my business partner and you know a very very close friend of mine, him and I started chatting in our group chat, and we were like, "What the hell? Like this shouldn't be cancelled. You know that's so lame. Hong Kong needs this." And we really believe Hong Kong did need all that art programming because we were just coming off of six months, just about six months of protests, right, due to geopolitical tensions, and so when it was cancelled. We said we're going to do our own version. We're going to call it F. Art Basil or Fart Basil, right? And the F stood for free. And the whole reason for doing that is just like I mean, at first it was just a joke, and we were talking about all these different ideas in that group chat. And I thought it was also kind of a joke. I mean, I would have been ready to go ahead with it, but I thought Xander wasn't ready. I wake up the next morning in India, and Xander sends me a whole. How do you say? Like a document of all these different logo concepts. So Xander's background is graphic design, right? So he sent me like a branded suite, basically for F. Art Basel, and I was like, okay, so you're actually serious about this? And he's like, yeah, I thought you were too. And I was like, okay, yeah, let's do it. And then so we start contacting different venues, we start contacting different artists, and then when I came back to Hong Kong, him and I made a video, and we kind of dressed up as these like you know Zoolander type people, you know, with these like insanely weird sunglasses, and we kind of made this like satirical. Video about the art world and about the event, and then it went viral in Hong Kong. And when I say viral, it got like you know 50 views. And so all of a sudden, these different sponsors started contacting us. There were a few beer brands, a few water brands, and then all these artists started contacting us as well. It got covered in Time Out and some other magazines. And so we actually decided to go ahead with it full steam. Ironically, one week before it's supposed to happen. COVID cases in Hong Kong spike, and at the time, spike means going from three cases a day to like twenty-three cases a day. So everyone was freaking out, including ourselves, and so we had to cancel it. It's kind of like the fire festival of art shows, you know. But then the idea never died down, and it became a lot bigger than just Xander and I, right? It was all these artists, and it was also a lot of people that reached out to us and said, you know, this is an art show that I actually feel like I can go to and be myself, because in many ways the whole idea with it was to be approachable and to allow people in Hong Kong to feel like they can participate in this dialogue surrounding art, regardless of how much or how little you know about art. And so that I because that idea never died down. At first, we postponed it, and then we had to postpone it again. We kept postponing it, and then we decided to launch an online gallery. And Xander is a whiz when it comes to web, web-related stuff, right? So he handled the website, and I started basically building relationships with artists and aligning our vision with theirs to make sure that we could actually help them out. And then during the third wave of COVID in Hong Kong, we went and saw, or sorry, during the second wave, we started looking at different spaces in Hong Kong. We couldn't afford anything. Like we were so in over our heads. But then the third wave of COVID hit, and we started looking at these same places again. We saw this spot in Apple China Warehouse Building, and I told the agent. The agent told me the price. It had come down significantly, and I told the agent, like, if you can do it for me at this price, which was a lot lower than what she was saying, and let me know by tonight, I'll take it. And I didn't think she was gonna sit, you know, agree to it. But she calls me an hour later and was like, "It's yours." And I was like, "F." I don't know if I can swear on your podcast, so I won't. I was like, oh, F, you know, like, 
now we have to actually go in on this because we obviously said we would and now we have to make money which we weren't making a lot at the time and we had to pay for the rent you know which of course wasn't as expensive as it would have been had it not been for that third wave of covid and if she hadn't agreed to our absurd offer but it was still an overhead that we had to pay and then that's what made us take it a lot more seriously that's when we started doing all kinds of different projects we started doing physical exhibitions not only in our space but also in other parts around town so for example our first physical show was actually in collaboration with god goods of desire the founders of god ben and douglas are just visionaries in their own way you know they have created a really cool brand for hong kong and they were nice enough to let us use their gallery space at pmq to do our first exhibition and so we did our first exhibition there we did our second exhibition at a barbershop called sauce barbershop on elgin street right opposite holy folk and then after that we had our first show in our physical space in apple chow and it just kind of snowballed from there but the most important thing for us is that you know we never really anticipated on doing this it just kind of happened organically and naturally and we got very very engrossed in it in a good way and now we're we've collaborated with over 20 artists we've hosted over like 15 exhibitions and we have no intentions of slowing down that's such an amazing journey about how you ended up where you are today it's amazing that you just went with the flow because the way you explained it sounded very unexpected and random. It was really random. It was completely by chance. But I think also what really helped is that Xander and I were both very hungry for it. Like we, even though we were doing this, like it, it be, even though it started off as a joke, the whole idea was to create a, an environment where people can engage with not only other people, but also with the artwork on the walls, right? And through my experience of going to art shows since I was younger is that the environment is often quite intimidating and cold. And not only does that make it difficult to interact with other people, but it makes it very difficult to interact with artwork. Because when you're interacting with artwork, at least for me, I have to let myself go and just get lost, you know, in the experience and let my mind go wherever the artwork is willing to take it. And that's difficult to do when you have some defense barriers, which is what happens naturally when you're in an environment that is a little bit intimidating or cold or not as welcoming as it should be for being able to have that kind of experience, if that makes sense. You began this business, Youngsoy Gallery, and you briefly spoke about Delirium, where I briefly met the artist, I think. Was that the last time you had an in-person show in Hong Kong or did you have one more show? That's right, so we had Peter Yule after that. We also did, so after Delirium, we had affordable art fair in Hong Kong, Then we went to New York to do a four bar for New York. And then we did Echoes with Peter Yule on Staunton Street. And our first show for this year after Peter's show is going to be Benson Koo starting on February 9th again in Staunton Street. Off air, before we started this podcast, we discussed the predictions of this year 2023. And there was one thing you said that I found very unexpected. It wasn't something I was conscious of until you said it uh, about how you began this business during COVID. Tell me again what you said previously. Well, we're a COVID baby, right? We started because of COVID in a way, and we've never operated outside of COVID. So it's hard for us to really understand what that's like. And while that is very, very exciting, it also is a little bit nerve wracking, you know? And I'll tell you exactly why. We were running 
a gallery with relatively affordable artworks in a time where people were not traveling and they were stuck at home, right? So that not traveling means that they were saving money, they had more disposable income and they were stuck at home. Therefore, they cared more about having a more beautiful home or more about, you know, decorating their home because they were hosting more at home and things like that. They were staring at their walls more and they wanted, you know, beautiful things on their walls that they connected with. I mean, it's more so the first factor, but I definitely think the second factor also played a role in that, right? Which is what allowed us to build our business. So people were stuck in Hong Kong and they had money to spend. So now that Hong Kong is open and people are traveling more, you know, a lot of their money is going into traveling, right? They're more conscious about saving it and spending it abroad or to get abroad, right? Obviously flights out of Hong Kong aren't exactly cheap right now. And so therefore they have less money to spend on art or they're less willing to spend money on art and they'd rather spend it on travel, things like that. The other thing is that 2023, everyone's been talking about a recession. And as Peter accurately says, recession is a self-fulfilling prophecy in some sense where just, you know, by talking about the possibility of a recession, everyone starts to become more conservative with their spending and saving more money. And that's oftentimes what one of the factors that can lead to a recession, right? So those two factors, you know, the possibility of a recession, I think we're kind of at the foothills of one right now, at least in some capacity. And then of course, people traveling again outside of Hong Kong makes us slightly nervous. There are things that we're doing to mitigate that nervousness, you know, we are like a horse with blinders on. We're staying laser focused and moving ahead with our shows. And also, you know, we've always put a lot of emphasis on our digital distribution, especially when it comes to things like content and also selling things like prints and whatnot, you know? So luckily we're doing okay with that, but hopefully as the year goes on, we'll still be able to not only have exhibitions with our core audience, you know, but also with a new international audience of people that are coming into Hong Kong. And I think that's what we're really looking forward to is exposing people outside of Hong Kong to our artists that are in Hong Kong and, you know, also international artists that we're starting to work with. But the idea of what cultural experiences can be like in Hong Kong, because Ultimately, the reason why we started the gallery, Oscar, is because, number one, we wanted to support radical emerging artists, right? And we wanted to do so in a way that allowed people to feel welcome and comfortable in a situation to do so. The other thing is we wanted to put Hong Kong on the map, culturally speaking, right? I think oftentimes Hong Kong gets seen as this big financial hub. And while it is that, and that's great, and I hope it's, you know, continues to be seen like that, I also hope it become seen as a cultural hub and an, an art city because historically Hong Kong was, you know, this explosion of culture, right? Some like world-class film directors have come from Hong Kong and there's a lot of these different things. And so I think we can put Hong Kong on the map again for art and Hong Kong already is on the map for art, but it's more in a commercial sense, right? It's like a commercial art hub. And I, again, I want to keep that right. But I would also like for it to be recognized for its creativity and its ability to push the envelope when it comes to the arts, not just, you know, visual arts, but also performing arts and, you know, all kinds of things, like culinary arts, you know, you name it. I think Hong Kong has, has the power and also the desire to do it. I think now what we really need to do is just have this kind of team effort in order to be able to create that uh, and make it happen. Before we continue, I have a small favor to ask. This podcast, The Last Supper, is offered to you at zero cost. And if you wish to support this podcast, 
please give it a like, a star rating, leave a comment and make sure you share this podcast with your friends and anyone you think will benefit from listening to this podcast about art in Asia. Many thanks and let's continue. We also talked about the subject of what one can say and not say in Hong Kong because there was and still is a lot of uncertainty around this. You said you went to Beijing where you made the suggestion that certain people in China felt that they had more freedom of speech than the US. This was a really fascinating perspective and viewpoint and let's delve deeper into this. So this was... uh Keep in mind, this was since 2015. I think we're living in a very different world from then. But I think what this lady meant by that is that in the US, oftentimes people are kind of looking to find a fault in one's words so that they can uh, scrutinize them and you know make themselves feel morally superior over anyone who, who might have said something that's not what is considered PC by, I guess, the media or, you know, this PC police, right, if you will. And again, I think it it applies to Hong Kong as well. Well, Hong Kong's kind of caught in between because I used to do stand-up comedy, right? I used to love doing stand-up comedy and I haven't done it in a long time, but it used to be something I used to really enjoy. And there have been situations where I remember doing stand-up in 2015 and I could get away with saying anything Right. And then I remember doing stand up in 2020 and, you know, people would make faces or like be like, you can't say that when I would say certain things. And, you know, my materials, of course, change, but I would say in the grand scheme of things, it's more or less the same tone. Right. I haven't like become more derogatory or, or anything like that. Not that I think it's derogatory to begin with, per se, but I think we're just living in a world now that there's a lot more people that are looking to be offended by what is being said for a myriad of different reasons. And I think that makes it difficult for expression in many different ways, right? For artistic expression, not only for comedy, but even different mediums, you know, different genres. So I think it's something that we have to be careful of. But most importantly, I would like to see artists being brave enough to challenge that. And I think we are seeing that. And luckily for some of the artists we're lucky enough to work with, we are seeing that a lot. You know, one of the artists that we work with, Ria Chandramani, I mean, she is challenging a lot of different ideas, especially in cultures that pertain to her, right? She's Indian individual born and raised in Hong Kong, like myself. And her work challenges a lot of things that relate to, you know, Hinduism and Indian culture in the grand scheme of things. And it's fun to see how people respond to it. And, you know, some people will comment on her work on social media saying horrible things. And she always just laughs it off and says, I'm glad that they responded the way they responded because at least they're responding, you know, to it. And I think that's what powerful art has the ability to do is make people respond. And people aren't always going to respond in a good way, you know, but if they're responding, it's important because it's making them think about it in a different way, right? Someone in on a podcast, I forget what it's called, this, the art world, what if, something like that, was saying how art is not where we should be looking for answers, but where we should be asking questions, right? And I think that's a very good way of phrasing it in a sense where art should be making us ask each other questions and ourselves questions instead of us looking for answers. While you were talking about this lady, I was thinking about and reflecting on whether I avoid certain topics now more than before. I've lived both 
in Beijing and Shanghai, and I never had the feeling I couldn't discuss certain topics in a private conversation. Right, 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 exactly. And like you know, I'll give you another example. So, for example, I remember being in university and being in a political, well, not political science. I was an international relations major in university, and I was in a class called the Political Development of Latin America, and. I remember raising my hand to make a comment on Hugo Chavez to my teacher at the time, my professor, and two people in class kind of turned around and like started not yelling at me, but you know, kind of like getting angry at my comment. I can't remember exactly what my comment was. It didn't really make sense why they were getting angry. It seemed like they were just getting angry for the sake of wanting to get angry at someone else's comment. And they would, these two individuals would often get mad at a lot of other people for making comments. And I think what that does is that it discourages conversation in the classroom. Probably one of the most important places for conversations to be taking place without people having to feel shy. Or censoring themselves from wanting to participate, you know, in their own education. So that's something that bothered me. And I would talk to you know my other peers about it in the class, and I was like, you know, I mean, how do you guys feel about the fact that they're always going after people in the comments they make? And people were like, yeah, it's annoying, and I don't take it personally or anything like that. I think it's just them. But at the same time, it makes it difficult for me to want to contribute more because I know that I'm just going to get handed at. And you know, I totally agree with that sentiment. And I think that idea. You know, kind of resonates throughout society in the grand scheme of things, more so in the West than in Hong Kong per se. But you know, I think people are scared to comment on things and talk about things and have these conversations because it's just going to turn into almost like some kind of you know fight or argument that polarizes both sides, right? And I don't think that's very necessary. I think there's enough problems in the world and enough going on. That we should actually be focusing on, rather than you know trying to argue and have moral superiority over someone else in a, in a silly argument. I wonder if this is unique to the area that we live in. To give you some context, my formative years were spent in Europe, and I remember at art school we had weekly or quite regular project review meetings. They were very candid and at times very personal. And of course, the general rule was to avoid comments on someone's attitude or make personal attacks. However, that was a real challenge not to feel personally involved because your fellow students were basically reviewing your personal work. But looking back, this has really helped me to think really critical, not to be negative, but to appraise and critique. So both trying to articulate your critique, but most importantly also to receive critique, to reflect and not to respond immediately, or at least not have an immediate response and judgment. My question to you is: What your experience was growing up in Hong Kong and going to school in the U.S. and having experienced both sides? So when I was At school in Hong Kong, I mean, I was too young to remember. You know, I also have like a lot of learning disabilities. I'm dyslexic, I'm dysgraphic, and I'm pretty sure I have ADD as well. I've been like tested for it like three times because the first time I took the test, uh, it showed that I didn't have ADD, and then the doctor was like, "Huh? What? No way! That's impossible! Run the test again!" And then they did it twice, and then I was like, "Okay, he has ADD." And then the doctor was like, "All right." <laughs> so um, yeah, well, <laughs> the reason I bring that up is because. I guess the way I learnt was very different, and I really only started to 
learn properly. You know, I only discovered how I learn. I only learned how I learn uh, in university. I wasn't the best student in high school. Definitely not the best student leading up to high school. Only in university was I able to actually engage in my education, if you will. And I think my hunger came for it when I graduated from university, right? So when it comes to video production, I was self-taught in some sense where I learned from YouTube University, as I like to call it, right? A lot about video production. And then I was lucky enough to work for some really interesting people in video production that were very, very helpful to me. And there they were very critical because it's not school, right? This is like real world, you know? So if my editing on a certain project sucked, they would tell me, hey, this sucks. Start from scratch. What the hell are you thinking? You know? And, you know, again, that bruises the ego, but it's probably a good thing that it bruises the ego because that's how you learn. And you have to be able to accept that, understand why they're saying it. They come from way more experience and then move forward from there. And also because I didn't study it in university or anything like that, I also felt like I had to listen to what they were saying because, you know, I don't have anything to back it up more or less. You know, I'm not like, oh, I did this because of this theory or that theory, you know, from this textbook. Yeah, that's kind of how it was for me in my process of taking criticism. And then in the art world, you know, people always criticize like a lot of things that we do more so in the beginning. Now it's a little bit different. I'm sure people criticize us behind our back. That's the art world in a nutshell, right? Uh, um, uh, love the art world. What's your viewpoint on critiquing in the art world in Hong Kong? What's your perspective on this? I think uh, it depends on who you speak to, but I would say there definitely is some critique, but I don't think there's enough. I really don't think so. I think some people get away with murder, to be honest with you. You know, you go to certain art fairs or certain shows and you see what's on the walls, you know, or not on the walls. And you see what they're they're charging for these different objects, you know, whether they're paintings or sculptures and different things. And it doesn't make sense. It doesn't add up to me. And it's one of the things that I, I guess would want to make me an art advisor in a way. But obviously I can't do that right now but yeah sometimes i see certain things and i'm like how the hell are they getting away with this and why isn't anyone else saying anything i think hong kong could do with some more art critics for sure (laughs) i asked for that now and then watch they're just gonna come like rip us apart they're like oh this gallery sucks (laughs) one challenge that artists in hong kong seem to face and maybe around the world as well is that they have review sessions during their uni years But as soon as you finish that and complete your university or art school, you're basically all by yourself. Definitely. Have you ever thought about, like, what would your thoughts about, you know, doing like a peer review thing be? Like, do you have other artists that you interact with on a regular basis? I have people who I know that I talk with, but when it comes to my own work, I think I am my own biggest critic. I know there are a few independent groups that host art critiques sessions that are just for artists one of them is hosted by hidden space you have to bring your own work and then fellow artists will critique and evaluate it so that's a peer-to-peer art review group which i think is very helpful for developing your own critical thinking skills for me oscar like whenever you know we get portfolios sent to us and things like that of artists that would be interested in you know, exhibiting with the Young Soy Gallery and things like that. We always have a look at these and 
like some work, some don't work for us, right? And we'll also meet with a lot of artists. And one thing that I, I guess in the beginning, I was always very shy to tell artists if I didn't think that we would be the right fit for them as a gallery. I often wouldn't tell them why because I was shy to tell them why. And I understand that I was doing a disservice to the artist by not telling them why, right? Because it could be something that they could learn from. And in many cases, in majority of cases, it wasn't that they weren't like, you know, we didn't like their work or we weren't talented enough, but we just couldn't justify it to our collectors, right? It's something that we didn't think we could do justice to the artists. And we would even recommend other galleries that we think might be a better fit for them, things like that. But like now when we are working with some artists that we're working with, it's very important for us to be honest with the artists about their work and also what direction we think they're headed in versus what direction we think they can head in. It, we, it's like a fine line, you know, it's kind of, kind of like balancing on the edge of a razor blade where you want to be very honest with them about their work, but then you also don't want to say the kind of things that would make them change their direction because of what you're saying from a commercial angle, right? Like for a gallerist, you have to manage the commercial side as well as the artistic side. And you have to find an integration between the two that works, right? For, as a gallerist. As an artist, it's important to focus on the artistic side, but also listen to what the gallerist is saying about the commercial side if you want the artwork to sell. If you don't care about the artwork selling, then don't listen to a gallerist. You don't even need a gallery at that point. But if you want the artwork to sell, and if you want the artwork to sell to people that are going to cherish these artworks as, you know, artifacts that they can then pass down to the next generation, then there has to be some commercial viability to it that actually encourages people to buy it and to cherish it, right? So it's a very, very complex, I guess, paradox in a way between, you know, commercial viability and artistic value. But at the same time, I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing. And I think the most important thing is that an artist is willing to not only listen to what others have to say about their work, especially like, for example, in this case, a gallery that represents them, but also at the same time, being willing to evolve, right? Move forward from their previous body of work. Leonardo DiCaprio, you know, arguably one of the most well-known performing artists out there, if you will, right? The actor, he said something along the lines of, each new stage of an artist's life demands a new artist or something like that, which is basically like, you know, whatever new stage you're at demands you to completely start over from scratch and kind of reinvent yourself. And I think that's important for, you know, visual artists as well, right? Sculptors, painters, drawers, anything like that. You have to be willing to kind of start over if you know, you're tired of making the work that you're, you're making or if you think you need a refresh. And I think it's a very healthy process for an artist to go through. The art world is, of course, very ambiguous. On the one hand, you have the very artistic side that is entirely focused on the intrinsic value of art making. And then on the other side, you have the financial market that sees art as a commodity or asset. I don't think it's about bending the need to commerce per se, you know, but I do think it is about acknowledging it and uh, what are things in it that, I guess, make it automatically impossible to sell your work, you know, for example, and keeping those things in mind. But then at the same time, I also think that, you know, keeping and, and having the ability to create exhibition pieces that sell, having those resources from sold works 
is what allows artists to have the resources to do whatever projects they want that aren't commercially viable, but very important from a cultural standpoint, right? So, you know, that's also, again, for the gallery, right? Like for us, sales are crucial. Sales are very important, not only because we need to be able to make a living from it and and, and everything like that, but also because with the resources we get from sales, we can uh, invest in more ambitious projects, right? That have more installation elements and things like that, that we don't necessarily need to worry about the commercial angle for. But at the same time, we have to do them because we believe it's important for our audience to be exposed to it. But that only comes through being able to sell it, uh, sell the work, because we don't want to have to rely on donations. Like we're not a nonprofit, we're not an NGO. So we don't want to have to rely on donations and things like that. We'd rather sell the artist's work because we also believe at the same time that selling the artist's work, their work, first of all, deserves to be bought and held on to and passed on to generations. And we also do think that they should be able to do projects that are beyond the commercial side of it. But I think the commercial side of it is very important. And I also think that it can be more fun than agonizing. I do see a lot of artists that we work with having a lot of fun with it and, you know, coming up with different things with us. And again, for us, whenever we work with an artist for an exhibition, it's a very collaborative project. We always give our best professional advice as do they, you know, and with that, we kind of work together to come up with these exhibitions and things like that. Let's go back to the appraisal of the work that you receive from artists. When you evaluate their work, do you believe that art needs to be intentional? For example, if you look at a work with a clear artist's statement and narrative, but in hindsight you find out that the work was a fluke, would you consider it? What do you think the role of intent and purpose is? Well, I think intent and purpose is important for sure, but not in every single case, right? I would say in, in a lot of cases it's very important. And the reason why it is for me is because we work with you know, radical artists that are pushing the boundaries in many ways. And for that purpose and intent is important because otherwise it's a pizza cutter. Do you know what I mean? All edge, no point. And we want to make sure that there is a point behind why the artist is doing what they're doing and are trying to communicate, you know, what they're trying to communicate. So for example, if they're just doing something like really bold and crazy just for getting attention and things like that, I don't really think that makes sense. But then if they're doing it to communicate something specific, then I think it makes it a lot easier for us to explain that to our viewers and for people to understand it. And also, again, have a reason for it to exist in the world. There's a chef from this restaurant called 11 Madison Park in New York. I forget what the chef's name is, like David Hume or Daniel Hume, something like that. Hume, you know, H-U-M-E, if I'm not mistaken, don't know how to pronounce it. But he once said that when it comes to the food in their restaurant, it has to have four elements. Number one, it has to taste delicious. It has to look delicious. It has to be creative or pushing the boundaries in some sense. But then most importantly, and he said this, most importantly, number four, there has to be a purpose for why that dish exists in the world right? It can't just be those three, those first three things. There has to be a reason why that dish is relevant and why it serves a purpose in the world. And I thought that was very interesting because for artwork that I personally collect, right? I would like for the artwork that I collect and the artwork I collect right now, I mean, you know, granted it's mostly by emerging artists, some that we represent, not 
all by artists we represent. For me, I like to have it. I like to either understand the intent, or if the artist is unwilling to give it, then it's one that I come up with myself in my head, right? And sometimes, you know, even when the artist is willing to give their purpose and intent behind a certain artwork or behind a body of work or a series of work, sometimes for me, I see and interpret things differently, and that's good enough for me. So I don't think it has to have purpose or intent, but for me personally, I prefer working with artwork that has some kind of purpose or intent, for sure. Then there's also like other artwork, right? For example, there's decorative work that doesn't necessarily have to, to have purpose or intent, but then I also think decorative work then is also fits a very specific purpose, right? When you talk about decoration versus art, where do you believe is that tipping point between those two domains? I know that is a gray area, but I'd like to hear from you, your viewpoint, where you believe that tipping point is between the what you call decoration or art. That's a good question. I think it really depends on for certain people, you know, like for example, when we have certain clients that kind of ask us this, they're like, we're doing a restaurant and we want to have nice decoration on the wall, but we don't just want it to be decoration. We want it to have, we want it to be artwork with some, some messages and some purpose and things like that. Right. We'll, we'll have clients that come in and say that. And we understand that. Right. But then also we always ask them, well, what exactly, you know, would, you like the artwork to be like in terms of what messaging and you know what kind of intent do you want behind it and that's such a long journey to take with these clients and then oftentimes you'll figure out that they don't exactly know what they want they just want something really powerful on the walls and oftentimes i tell them that you know you can easily do this with prints and things like that and oftentimes sometimes clients will end up going for work that is very powerful for certain parts of their concepts, whatever it may be, but then other parts, they're just happy with going with decorative works, right? So where I draw the line for that, for me, it's it comes down to how I interpret the artwork. And then also for decorative work, it's how much the artwork physically fits into the space, right? How much does it match up with the interior, things like that. It's more based on that. And to be honest, I'm not so into those style projects. I mean, we still do them. And oftentimes we usually then advise on artists that we're not working with. We'll advise on working with certain artists that are very, very good at creating artwork that are specific to certain interiors, right? I would say that's decorative work. Whereas fine art, if you will, or art that's not for strictly decorative purposes is artwork that was created with no intention of where the artwork would be displayed or hung. And instead it was created because there was something that an artist was itching to communicate and the only way they could communicate it was through that specific medium. So for me, that's where I would draw the distinction. Does that make sense? As a follow-up question from the artist's intent and purpose, what do you believe art is for? I think there's not one specific purpose of what it's for and I think everyone has their own reason of what it's for for them, right? Like some people would argue that nature is art, right? They both, in many cases, involve the Fibonacci sequence. Um, and in other ways, some people would say that art is nothing. Art is, you know, it doesn't serve any purpose. Someone once said, art is, the definition of art is a piece of pure beauty that serves no purpose. And I don't necessarily agree with that at all. Makoto... 
Fujimori, I forget what his name is, he's a Japanese-American artist, and he once said that art is not a peripheral luxury for the elite, but instead how our civilization is to be maintained and restored, you know, something along the lines of that. And I would agree with him more so than whoever said the, the first thing um, regarding that it has no purpose, you know. But then also, this is one of those things that keeps me up at night, right? I think about this all the time. Like, what is art? How do you define art, if you can even define it? What is the purpose of art? And can it actually make the world better, more interesting place to live? And the one thing that I'm always able to answer, and maybe deliriously enough so, is that I do think that art can make the world a better, more interesting place to live, which is why I do what I do. And which is why I'm lucky enough to work with radical artists that I believe, whether they, you know, whether we agree on what the definition of art is or not, because I, for me, I still don't know exactly how I would define it. I'd have to write like a five page essay on what is art or what it's not. Um, but I think the one thing that we all agree on is that we believe that art can somehow make the world a better, more interesting place to live. And I don't just mean visual art, right? I mean this with music, film, food, comedy especially, I think is very important, right? Maybe I'm a little bit biased towards comedy, you know, as a former comedian myself. Uh, yeah, well, you know, like, so earlier you were all saying mistakes, right? If it's a mistake, can it still be art? I would use food as an example of how if something is a mistake, it can still be art, right? Because there are a lot of dishes I can't, I can't think of one specifically right now. I'd have to Google it. But I know that there's a lot of dishes out there that are really like popular world famous dishes that are essential to certain cuisines that were mistakes. You know, something fell into the pot or they added this instead of that and they got a whole new dish. So I think mistakes can lead to some really great inventions or creations. But for me, as I mentioned earlier as well, like for me, the artist that I resonate with does also have intent and purpose. And I think that's exactly like I've seen your work and I think behind your work, you can see that, you know, and I think behind some of the artists that we're lucky enough to work with that you can see that as well. Well, it's also our job, right, as gallerists to make sure that people understand that. <laughs> Of course, there are unintended and unexpected events that happen all the time in art. Especially with certain live performances, there is this interaction between the unknown of the environment and the artist. But as an artist, you have to make a choice to respond or not, to use it and to incorporate it in your work or not. There seems to be a very deliberate and conscious act from the artist to show certain works and disregard other pieces of art that they don't select for a show. Of course, some artists are better than others in articulating their work verbally, or they do this in an essay, and others are unable to do so and therefore need a curator or a medium to help them. Exactly, right? They have something to communicate and it, they're itching to communicate this thing and the only way they can get it out is through their medium or their genre. And that's why, you know, people like myself have a job is because, again, they're unable to communicate that the way they would like to, which is why we help them communicate it to their audience as best as we can. And then that allows them to focus on their work so that they don't have to worry about all these other external factors that some might argue can 
taint the purity of their artistic minds. <laughs> What about your career in comedy? Did you completely stop this or is this a temporary pause on your comedy career? And how is comedy helping you in the art world? Uh, well, you know, in my opinion, comedy in many ways is very important for public speaking and being a gallerist, a lot of it involves public speaking because you have to talk to collectors and gallery goers and things like that. And actually my teammates that are also public facing, which is everyone, right? They're required to do stand up as well because it teaches you how to cope with social pressure. It teaches you timing. It teaches you how to know your audience. It teaches you how to make someone laugh when they're expecting you to make them laugh. So it teaches you all these very valuable skills, which is all related to sales. These, like, if you want to learn how to be a salesperson, do stand up. It's probably the best training you could ever get. And most importantly, you get up there and the first time you do it, you get gutted alive. I kid you not. It's a very healthy process for everyone to experience at least once in their life, you know? But most importantly, it teaches you how to speak, how to not speak too fast, how to articulate, but knowing that you're under time pressure, like there's all these different, very valuable skills that you get from it. But most importantly, it shows that you're willing to go for it and make a fool of yourself. And that's who we want our team filled with, right? People that are willing to take that leap regardless of knowing where they're going to land. Is that the reason why doing a stand-up is one of the recruitment requirements for your team? Yep, <laughs> very much so. Well, it's it's more of like a baptism in a way, you know? It's like a rite of passage. And again, it's not for any reason other than it being a purely educational and entertaining experience for the person who's doing it. And again, you know, Xander and I don't hold back from it either, right? Like we put ourselves right there with it. The only person who has exceptions from it are freelancers that we work with and stuff like that. Like if you're on our team, like a full-time member of our team, you're expected to do it. And again, we'll go up there and do it with them before or after, you know, whatever they prefer. And it's kind of like a team building activity as well, to be honest. How did you do the hiring? Because during COVID, all these stand-up venues in Hong Kong were closed. It was closed. That's right. It was closed during COVID. So actually, there's one person that on our team that hasn't done it yet who has to do it. And they're going to be doing it soon. And we're probably going to announce it. So come down and, you know, bring your tomatoes. No, I'm just kidding. Bring your tomatoes for me, not for my teammate, because uh, they'll probably kill it. Yeah, so one person has to do it. But during COVID, like clubs have been opening and closing. There's a bunch that are open now, which is awesome. There's one that has closed down for good, which is sad. But for example, the one that's open now is The Aftermath, which is a bar that also does like live band events. And actually tonight they have an event called Art Malade, which is hosted by Joshua Kahan. And it's this event where like two people get up and kind of art jam based on what the audience yells out to them, you know? So you can be like alligator, cowboy, smoking a cigarette. And then the, the two artists will have to art jam and create that under like a certain time crunch. And then there's an auction at the end of the night, which I'm hosting today actually. And then we try to sell off those works. Uh, it's just a super fun event. It involves artists. Actually, you should do it. Can I let him know that to get in contact with you? I think that would be a super fun event. And he's like very, very talented. You know, he came up with this. He's an artist himself. He's a very talented illustrator. And, you know, again, these are the kinds of events that I think Hong Kong needs more of. Just kind of fun events that relate to art. But then also this one relates to comedy in a sense because they'll also have like two improv guys get up after the, you know, the art side of it is done before the auction and people are having drinks and interacting and it's a good time over the years i've seen the creative industry 
evolving and growing very slowly. One great example is Hong Kong Walls or HK Walls, who have been really active to promote street art across Hong Kong. Shout out to HK Walls. They're doing some, I mean, they're always doing cool stuff. And I think they have their festival happening this year as well, if I'm not mistaken. I I don't know if I'm allowed to say that or not. I mean, you know, Hong Kong Walls has put Hong Kong on the map to a lot of artists out there in the world and they're just crushing it. You know, they always do interesting, cool stuff. And uh, Jason and Maria are, are really, really interesting and thoughtful people, you know, so shout out to them. I, you know, it's funny. I had Jason on our podcast, Insincerity, like over a year, like t- two years ago at this point. Yeah, it was literally exactly two years ago. It was January 2021 when I had him on our, our, our podcast and it was super fun. We just drank beer and chatted and, you know, just all kinds of weird random stuff. But yeah, he, you'll have fun with him. So what's next for you and what else do you have planned for 2023? So the next thing we're hosting is a solo exhibition with Benson Koo, who's a local Hong Kong born and raised artist. Actually, Chung Chao, you know, he's from Chung Chao. He's an islander like yourself, an island boy. And he is got this new body of work that he's been producing over the last year. He has a newborn baby that was born the day of the last show we did together, funnily enough. That was a group show alongside Alyssa Tang and Rich Phipson called Flesh and Bones that was hosted in Kennedy Town in December 2021. And this show is going to be a solo exhibition. And for the year of 2022, Benson was spending time with his baby and his wife, Rachel, in Barcelona. And in Barcelona, Benson was inspired to do this whole new body of work. And it's, again, an evolution from his previous body and work because it involves a more diverse range of materials. And he's going to be showing this for the first time at this exhibition that we're doing, opening on February 9th in Central on 3 Staunton Street. So... If you get the chance, obviously, we'd love for you to come check it out. Whoever's listening and in Hong Kong, come check it out. It's going to be a great show. One of his friends, who he's very close to, is going to be DJing the event. And the music that the DJ will be playing is to emulate the artwork that's on the walls, right? He's produced some tracks, if I'm not mistaken, that kind of uh, were inspired by Benson's work. And so he's going to be playing them at the show. And then Benson has also created animations of his uh some of his work that he did on the streets of barcelona and so there's gonna be an an installation of that as well so it should be a fun show Uh, hopefully it's one where you know people can come and spend some time there because you know it's gonna be on for two weeks roughly and we just want people to come in and spend time there and actually get to know the work and also why benson creates the work he creates because he has this notion, and I completely agree with him, that monsters don't live under your bed, they live inside your head. And I think that's the kind of, I guess, story behind his work, not to give too much away, because obviously we want you to come and experience it for yourself, but I think that gives you enough of an idea of what the show's about. And the show's called Monsters. It's been a great conversation, Shivang, and I'm going to end our podcast with the last supper question. If you were to have your last supper, which artist would you invite and why? That is a tricky one. There's a lot of different artists I'd want to invite. 
feel like I'm gonna get in trouble if I don't say one of the artists I'm working with now, but I can't say all of them. Okay, right now, okay, if you were to ask me right now, I would probably say Keith Haring. No, or Men Ray. I like Men Ray a lot too. Okay, I would say, let's go with Keith Haring, and I'll tell you why Keith Haring. Keith Haring is the first artist that I was ever really exposed to properly during a year five project where we had to design these t-shirts for our year five camp. And, you know, we had studied some other artists before then, but I was too, like, I didn't really care about those other artists. Like, Keith Haring is the first artist I saw, and I was like, wow, this is really cool. And I obviously went down a rabbit hole from more so when I was in high school, but I always remembered Keith Haring being the first artist I was exposed to and what this idea of street art was, and also how Keith Haring is one of the first artists that made artwork affordable through things like merch and stuff like that. And so... He is just like a very unique individual. He also used to go, if I'm not mistaken, to the Paradise Garage, which was this insane venue in New York City where people would dance all night and it was a very creative environment. And I know he would do a lot of work with the Paradise Garage. And he also grew up in New York or he was on in that New York street uh, art scene in the 80s, if I'm not mistaken. There's just a lot of things that I would want to talk to him about. And mostly just like, I don't even want to ask him questions. I just want to have a couple of drinks with him and be like, you know, so then talk about different random things. Okay, I can go on and on about this, but I would probably say Keith Haring. And what would I eat? I would probably take him to Sichuan Hut in um, in Shenguan, and I would get him the spiciest noodles, see how he handles it. Because uh, who doesn't like Dan Dan Min, right? Many thanks, Shivan. It was a real pleasure talking with you and all the best with the upcoming shows. Well, I just want to say, Oscar, thank you so much for having me on this podcast. It was fun being on the other side. You know, I'm usually the one doing the interviewing, not being interviewed. So it felt very special to me. And if we ever, ever, ever launch our podcast again, you're going to have to be the first guest we have on it. What do you say? Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks again, Oscar. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Last Supper with gallerist Shi Fang. I hope you enjoyed it and I offer this weekly podcast at zero cost. So please help me to raise the awareness of the amazing artistic talent we have in Asia. You can do this by simply subscribing or following this podcast channel. Give it a five star rating or leave a comment. And don't forget to share it with your friends and colleagues. I will post all the social media links and other references on my blog and in this podcast description as well. And before you go, The Last Supper podcast supports the Hong Kong Art Gallery Association, a member-based non-profit organization of established local and international art galleries in Hong Kong.